And I want to talk this morning about a very interesting dynamic that exists between our faith and pragmatism. There's a dynamic that exists between our faith and pragmatism. Now, the Lord tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. We know that. That's a verse we quote. And we know we have his presence and we have his power and we have his provision. And we can call on his name and I'm so glad that we can, aren't you? That we can call on his name and ask him for help. But even with all that, we tend to think in terms of practical reality. Now follow this line of thought. We walk by faith, not by sight. We trust the Lord. He's saved us. He's redeemed us. That's totally a matter of trust. We can't prove today that we're saved. We take that on faith. And we're told to walk by faith. We're told without faith it's impossible. Can you have a word? It's impossible to please God if you don't have faith. And yet so much of our life is lived talking about reality. The practical reality of what's going on. As if faith and reality can't exist in the same sentence. Now, the example of this is that we know the miracles in the Bible are authentic, right? We know that they happen. They're not just stories. They're not metaphors. They're literal historical events. But when it comes to believing the Lord for something that dramatic in our lives, of saying, God, you can do that. You can heal Scott as he was close to death. You can heal Barb this morning as she lays in that hospital. You can do that kind of work. When we start to talk that way, in the back of our mind, that little pragmatic side comes out and starts to say, that's a great concept, Paul, but it can't really happen for me. And why do we think that way? God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? He hasn't changed. His power hasn't diminished. He's not less than he was when he formed the universe and scattered the stars in the sky and knows every single one of them by name. So many that we can't even fathom how many there are. He knows everyone by name. He's the same God today as he was yesterday. His power hasn't changed. His mercy hasn't changed. His unending love has not changed. The Bible never tells us to live only pragmatically. The Bible never says, have a safe faith that you can explain. Only trust as much as you can rationalize. It says that true faith has the characteristic of hoping for things that we can't see to the point that it's like we're holding them in our hands. It's that real to us that what we believe for will happen. Now, how often do you believe that way? How often do you pray that way? When you go to the Lord and take something big to Him, how often do you say, God, you're going to do this? And it's not just lip service. It is genuine faith. Lord, you can and you will work. I believe the Lord has a word for us this morning. And I believe this is a very important word, and I think it's been borne out the last few weeks. And it's about this concept. So if you have your Bible, and you always do, thank you so much. Turn to Joshua chapter 10. We're going to look very quickly this morning, because I want to show you something at the end. We're looking very quickly at three passages, and we know them well. We're not going to develop them really, really in-depth this morning, because they're familiar. And the spiritual principles are very clear. So I want to use them just as kind of the foundational concept for uh, this message. And this message is called Believing God for Big Answers. I want to show you a video at the end that 
that reinforces this principle. I, I want to ask you a question at the outset. And I don't want you to just say, oh yeah, Paul, that's great. Yes, I, I want you to really think through this question. How many of you would like to see God work in your life in unexplainable, powerful ways? I mean, not just, okay, Lord, help me through this day. That's a good prayer. God will help you. God cares about even the mundane. But, but really believing the Lord to do something in unexplainable, powerful ways. To do that with this church that has been through so many experiences and has been, as we talked about last week, resilient and has persevered and has gone to place to place. The, the Lord's now calling us, guys, to have a powerful ministry in this area. He's calling us to that. And, and we have to believe that he will. He's proven throughout history that he loves to work in that way. So there really is no way that we can have a tepid, timid faith and see that happen. If our faith isn't big, we will not see big answers. If our faith isn't explosive, we will not see God work often in very powerful ways because without faith it's impossible to please Him. So we can never conclude that we can walk around with kind of a lacking faith or a faith that isn't really confident in Him because that's not really faith. That's some kind of weird hybrid of hope and, and, and kind of pseudo-confidence and reality. The Bible doesn't tell us to live that way. So let's look quickly at these three examples of bold, faith-filled prayers that were quickly answered by the Lord. And let's look at why he answered them. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 6, chapter 10, book of Joshua. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal, and the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter of Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stopped and the moon stopped until the nation avenge themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now let's take it apart just for a second. Israel's in a battle with the Amorites, and Joshua puts together the most logical response. He gets all the soldiers together, to take on this army that is assembled against him, and he plans to surprise them at night. While he's doing this, while he's making his plans, the Lord intervenes. And the Lord says to him, the battle's already won. There will not be one Amorite 
we've got to take God as word. That's what he says. There will not be one Amorite left standing at the end of the fight. That's not a bad promise, right? You gotta feel good as a commander when you get that, that word. Battle's already won. Victory is already assured. When you get done, there will not be one person standing. It will be a complete victory. And when they do get into the fight, look at the text. It's exactly what happens. The Lord confounds the enemy. The text says that he took down the armies. And as they're retreating, and as the battle's already really being realized, God sends large hailstones that kills more people just by the hailstones than all the armies of Israel can combined. Now, this is the first spiritual principle this morning. The Lord answered the prayer because he loves to protect his people. The Lord answered this prayer because he loves to protect his people. That is an amazing truth, but it is the truth. The Lord delights to show love for his children. If you threaten my kids, I will defend them to the death. You mess with my kids, you mess with my wife, you mess with my family, I will defend them to the death. God does exactly the same thing. He showed his love and his protection by by pushing away the penalty of sin, by removing the penalty of sin, and by protecting us for all eternity. And you know how he did it? He did it by sending his son to die. He defended us to the death. We weren't worth it. We hadn't done anything to deserve it. We weren't crying out for it. And God said, here's how much I love you. I'm going to defend you to the death. I'm literally going to go to the cross for you because I want to protect you from the penalty of sin. Praise the Lord for that this morning. That's what God has done for us. So when we pray and we say, Lord, I need your help, but my faith isn't strong, we can pray confidently because he's proven that's what he does. And we see it here in the text. Look back at verse 11. Everything's great. As of verse 11, battle's going smoothly. Everything's done. There are no problems. God's kept his word in a dramatic way. The people have complete confidence that he's providing. But, but here are two important things to notice of what happens next. Look at verse 12. Because here we say that Joshua continued to ask the Lord for help. Now that struck me as funny. I've studied this passage a lot of times. But, but it struck me as weird this week. God said, I'm going to win. God said, nobody's going to be left standing. God even proves it as they're already killing people that by sending hailstones, there's no doubt about the outcome of this battle. And yet, you notice in verse 12 that Joshua continues. Listen now, he continues to ask the Lord for help. He stays in communication with the Lord, even though we don't have a record of what he said to him. He makes sure that he is both grateful and dependent on the Lord to continue to help him. Now, that's very important because sometimes when we see a prayer answered, or we've seen the Lord clearly help us, not only do we not thank him enough, but we take it for granted that we can just go to the next thing and God, hey, that prayer already counts, right? That prayer I prayed a couple weeks ago, there's a residual effect, right? We need to keep asking and keep communicating. This battle is assured. He has the word of God, and yet he keeps praying. Even after the victory, it says Joshua spoke to the Lord And then that led to what happened next. Look at verse 13. Joshua doesn't assume anything. God's made his promise. God has fulfilled his promise. But Joshua desires the Lord's help until the battle is completely done. So he prays something that seems 
so outlandish, so not real, so to speak. He says, son, stand still in the sky. Moon, don't you move. Now, since when can a man command the heavens to stop? But here's the essence of Joshua's faith. The battle's already won. God's already fulfilled his promise. But Joshua wants to see the battle completion, and he doesn't just assume, well, all right, God's done it. I can just back down, rest a little bit. Hey, you guys take care of this. I'm going to sit in my chair and watch. He wants to see it completed. And look at verse 14. I love this verse so much. This verse has just overwhelmed me this week. It says, there was no day like it before or after when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. If you have ever had doubt about the power and effectiveness of prayer, look at that verse. I've had people tell me over the years, well, I don't need to pray. God's sovereign. God will do what he's going to do. You know, what's the point? I'm not going to change God's mind. Um, Look at that verse. He didn't change God's mind, but he asked God for something that was unexpected. And it says right there, I'm sorry, you can't dispute verse 14. God listened to the voice of a man, and he answered his prayer. I'm telling you, when you pray now, that should change some things. You need help this morning, you need prayer, you need to be ministered to, you want somebody to pray for you. You come up here, members of the prayer band will up here, and they'll pray for you. And they're not going to pray timidly. They're going to pray believing. And you need to believe too, because the powerful, effective prayer of a righteous man does what? It avails much. Joshua's prayer was powerful because he knew the Lord protects. Now turn over to 1 Kings 18 for a second. Let's kind of take a little tour through our Bibles this morning. Here's the second principle, and we know this text well. We've studied this before. The second spiritual principle is the Lord answers Elijah's prayer to prove his authority. To prove his authority. He protects his people and he proves his authority. Look at the verses here. You know it, but let's start in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel should be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell. There's no delay between verse 37 and 38. The fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, this is a familiar account, so we don't have to develop it much. We know there was a contest between the prophets of Baal and, the, and Elijah, who was the prophet of God. It was to prove to a rebellious nation 
who the true God was, who the real, true, living God was. Because the nation at this point was deep into idol worship. They were worshiping false idols. They were bowing down. They were making sexually explicit statues that they would worship and, and, and do all sorts of things around. The nation was completely morally depraved. Elijah really is the only one. So he says, let's have a contest. Let's prove who really is God. The one, the one God who can send fire down from heaven and burn up the sacrifices that we're going to offer, that's the God. We'll worship him. Everybody says, that's great. Not believing for a moment that God is going to respond. That Baal's their guy. And Elijah says, you guys go first. Go ahead. Knock yourselves out. Do whatever you need to do. I'll sit here in my lounge chair and watch you guys. I know exactly what's going to happen. But this will be... This will be fun. So they dance around and cut themselves and cry out and plead and beg for hour after hour after hour after hour after hour. Nothing. Nada. Silence. Elijah kind of says, you know, where's your God? Is he on vacation? Is he in the bathroom? What's he doing? Reading the paper? Where, where is he? Oh, Baal, come on. Whoop. Elijah's just sitting there. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Finally, exhausted, late afternoon, they, they say, we don't know what to do. You know why? Because false gods never answer prayer. False gods can't help. They're impotent. They're non-existent, which is why it is so worthless to worship anyone but the Lord. They cry out, nothing happens, hour after hour. Elijah says, let's make this interesting. Pour a bunch of water on the altar. Pour it on the wood. Let's get a trench. Let's make a little moat around our altar. Let's really trench it. Not just, hey, I'm going to pour a bottle of water. Cover it. And then in one moment, not hours, no delay, in one moment, he prays for God to work. Look at it again. And the answer of the Lord is so powerful, and he sends fire down from heaven that even licks up, what a visual, it licks up the water in the trench and burns everything all the way down to the dust, and then it burns the dust. This is not just, this is. And all the people look at that, and they say, okay, we get it. A nation that was completely and utterly rebellious now falls in their faces and says, we get how big God is. We get how powerful God is. We get how merciful God is. Elijah's prayer wasn't for a small answer. It was for a big answer. But listen, the answer had less to do with fire coming down from heaven and burning the sacrifice as much as it did with God. Help these people to have a true understanding that you are worthy to be worshipped and trusted. How do we know that? Look back again in verse 37. He, he says, send fire, but here's why. So the people will know. Don't get caught up in the fire here. Get caught up in what God really did. Nothing had convinced the nation prior to this. Ahab and Jezebel were evil. They were wicked. They were corrupting the nation's morals. Baal worship had become far more powerful and prevalent than Jehovah worship to the point that Elijah really is alone and there's no recognition of the problem. There's nobody that's crying out to God saying, God, help us. 
And the king and queen are now threatening Elijah. And he could have retreated. He could have gone back into the wilderness and preached to a couple people and ministered here and there. But he didn't. He says, let's call it out. Let's get the nation together so we'll really know who the Lord is. Listen, as believers, we need to pray this more often. And we need to be willing to boldly stand for the Lord because it isn't getting better. It isn't getting better. And before everything is destroyed, and we know by our study of Revelation that it will be, we need to beg the Lord to act in such a way that will cause people to know He is God. Listen, we have, we have two different responses because it's really depressing to read the paper. It's depressing to watch the news. So we have two responses. We can be critical and judgmental and be discouraged that people are less interested in Jesus Christ than ever, or as we'll study in a few weeks, we can be moved with compassion and become very passionate about asking the Lord to use us to spread the gospel, and then we need to get out there and do it. There are days where I just want to throw up my hands and say, it's not going to get better. And that's a reality. But the question is, what are we going to do about it? James says, Jude says, Snatch some that have one foot already in the fire. Snatch them out. Give them the gospel before they perish. We can sit here and do church and have our nice building and we're warm and we're happy and then we'll go do our thing this afternoon. Or we can say, what is God calling us to? What is God asking us to do? He's already asked us. He's already given us the assignment. What are we doing about it? Now look at one more example because those first two examples aren't as personal for us, even though we know (coughs) how important and necessary they are. But there's a final example that I'd like to show you in Luke chapter 8. And I think this really hits many of us where we are this morning. There's a man in Luke 8 who comes to Jesus with a very bold request. And this request, on face value, on reality, seems outlandish. It seems like it's far beyond, as we equivocate when we pray sometimes, far beyond what we could hope for to really happen. But look at Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. As Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. Drop down to verse 49. While Jesus was still... I'm sorry, I went too far. Yes, I'm sorry, verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter's died. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. They were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, stop weeping, for she's not died. She's asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. Notice that word. And he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. A huge comes... Uh, huge crowds have waited for Jesus. They're, they're ready for him to come back. So you can imagine the, uh, the, the fervency and the need of the crowd. I mean, they're, 
They're raucous and they're frantic. Hey, here's Jesus. He's coming. Hey, everybody, he's coming. And the crowd presses in and they're very, they're very uh, much pushing and shoving to get close. But somehow this official gets through the crowd. Somehow Jairus gets through, whether it was because he was a synagogue official and, and people respected him or whatever the case may be. He gets to Jesus. And he comes with an urgent need. He's desperate for Jesus' help. We, we pray differently when we're desperate for the Lord's help, right? When we're really at the point of need, oh, that's when we really cry out to the Lord. But when everything's going great, God, thank you, it's great. I'm going to go do my stuff today, okay? Get to you later. But, but boy, if the crisis hits, I'm coming to you. You're faithful. Oh, that we would pray this way all the time that we would pray with this much passion and this much focus. I wish I prayed more like that. Look at it. Jairus falls at Jesus' feet and he cries out to him and he implores him, help my daughter, she's dying. Any parent knows the pain of this, what this would be like. Try to imagine how desperate he was, how much he was wanting to help his daughter, knowing Jesus was the only hope. But when Jesus starts to help him, the part we didn't read, you know it, He's interrupted by another woman who has a health issue and she tries to get Jesus' help just by touching his robe. And I've always wondered, this has always intrigued me, what was Jairus doing between verse 43 and 48? Come help me. Okay, I'll come. She's going to be great. Okay, and Jesus is coming and all of a sudden he gets stopped and distracted and the woman and he heals the woman. What's Jairus doing? What's the range of emotions he's feeling? Anger, hostility, annoyance, impatience, frustration, desperation, sad. What is it? What is he feeling? Fear, resignation, all those collapsing in at once. And he's, he's going, come on, come on, like me behind the person that was driving 20 on Taylor this morning. Come on, come on. You can do it. Press it down. The one on the right, press down. Go. What's he feeling? His daughter is close to death. And this woman, oh, God bless her, she needed help too, but come on, I was here first. What are you... And as Jesus finally breaks away, here comes the person from his house. And it took one look to their face to know. She died. Don't bother Jesus anymore. I'm so sorry. She died. Feel the heartache of that. And here's what hit me this week. It's compounded by this thought that he had done everything right. His request had been full of faith. He had literally taken a position of humility and dependence before the Lord. And Jesus had started to help. But now it seemed like all hope was gone. He had been so close to a big answer. But close didn't count anymore. Sometimes it feels like we're at that point, doesn't it? We've trusted and we've prayed but the answer doesn't seem to be coming. And it is so easy to lose hope in those moments and to give up before the big answer comes. 
But here's what you don't read in the text. Look between the lines. Jairus doesn't walk away. And immediately Jesus says, it's okay. Jairus, listen to me now. Listen to me now. Good news is coming. Jairus perseveres and he believes Jesus when Jesus says we're going back to the house because Jairus knew one great fact. Jesus isn't limited by our circumstances. And just because the answer wasn't in Jairus' timing doesn't mean the answer wasn't still coming. The friend says, don't bother Jesus anymore. If that phrase doesn't typify the attitude that we sometimes take as we pray when the answer doesn't come and we say, well, I just need to give up because I can't tangibly see how the Lord's going to work. But look at Jesus. Look at what he says. Don't be afraid anymore. Just believe. I don't know about you, but I need that verse today. Don't be afraid anymore. Just believe. Jesus is still ready to answer this big prayer in a big way. And that's the third spiritual truth. The Lord loves to provide for our needs. Just because the circumstances seem hopeless, and I'll grant you, death is pretty hopeless, right? That doesn't mean that the hope is gone. Jesus has other plans for Jairus and for his daughter. And he allows them to be taken to the edge, listen now, and even past the edge before he answered with this miracle. I often hear people say, and I think it's well-intentioned, and I'm sure I've said it myself, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. You know what? There are some times when he does. Because handle is a subjective word. Scott got to some places where I'm sure he thought, I can't handle this anymore. We've talked about that when he cried out to God in the middle of the night and said, I can't do it anymore. And God ministered to him. Sometimes God does take us past the point where we just go, I cannot do it anymore. And God says, if you ask me for help, I'll give it to you. And I will prove how great and awesome I am. He raises the child from the dead Listen, that was easy at this point. What was hard was believing Jesus enough to keep walking. And then when Jesus said, everything's going to be fine, and all the professional mourners are like, this guy, where'd you get this clown? Really? She's going to be like, she's dead. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, uh-uh. Come on, wife, let's go. In the room. Peter, James, John, let's go. Let's go in the room. Close the door. Jesus is about to do something. And Jesus says, get up. And immediately, notice the verb, adverb, Jesus, immediately, she gets up. What did the mourners think then? Are they still laughing? God had worked. How often, let me close and then I'm going to show you this video. How often do we walk with that kind of faith? How often do we really believe the Lord for big answers? Listen, as frustrating as the past few months have been, The Lord has provided in amazing ways, and he continues to do so, but we need to have strong faith in him. Listen now carefully. We need to not let the circumstances or the enemy convince us for a moment that the Lord cannot and will not provide for all we need and more. And I have a video this morning that illustrates this point. Please understand that that though he's talking about finances, this is not just 
about finances. Now, we need to hear what he's going to say as we finish the budget. This is about how the Lord blesses our complete faith in him. Faith that doesn't argue the point. Faith that doesn't set up objections. Faith that doesn't say, well, this is the logical scenario. This is about big faith and big answers. This is Pastor Jim Simbla, Brooklyn Tabernacle, New York. And we're going to close with this. And then we're going to ask the Spirit to challenge us in our faith. And I've got to make a little disclaimer. If you're listening to the podcast, you're not in this room, you're listening to the podcast, we can't play this on the podcast because um, potential copyright issues with the music that's being played. So if you want to look at this later, if you're listening by podcast, go to the brooklyntabernacle.org website, January 12th webcast, start at 40 minutes. I encourage you to listen to this again and again and again because this is how God works. Would you play it? How does that impact us? I know that was long. Service is going to run long today because we're going to sing again. But how does that impact us? That, that, that's a true story. That's not something where you can go, well, it was written 2,000 years ago. It didn't really happen. That happened 11 years ago. Are we trusting God for big answers? Are we praying with that kind of faith? How else can we explain the Lord listen to the voice of a man? Let's close our eyes. I want to really challenge you right now just for a moment. Because sometimes your logic, sometimes reality in your mind says it's impossible. It's impossible. It can't happen. Faith says, yes, nothing's impossible with God. I don't know what you're trusting for the Lord, uh, to the Lord this morning. Maybe you're not trusting Him. Maybe you've got something that seems like too big an obstacle and you're just not trusting Him. I don't know what the Lord's trying to do other than to stretch your faith and my faith. Without faith, you can't please Him. There's no equivocation in that verse. Without faith, you can't please Him. So just you and the Lord right now, before the choir and we sing, what do you need to trust the Lord for? A big answer. I want to encourage you, after the service, if you need someone to pray for you and encourage you, and and to pray for that big answer, Maybe you're still struggling. Paul, I know the concept. I get the story that he just told, but it's too big. No, it's not. Nothing is impossible with God. I would encourage you after the service, if that's you this morning, come up. We'll sit with you. We'll pray with you. We'll minister to you and encourage you. The Lord is always faithful. He is always good. And he can do amazing things. Powerful things when we trust Him. God, we thank You for the truth of who You are, the reality of what You have done. We thank You for how You answered that prayer so specifically. That's the way You work. And You care just as much about the small things in our life this morning as You do about that $6 million because You love us. And I pray, Lord, that You would increase our faith and increase our expectation based on that faith of what you can and will do in our lives, in our midst, in our church, in our families, in our marriages. 
Lord, you can do this. And we're going to trust you for it. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.